Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Making history, that's what is happening all the time, whether we know it or not. Well, Bert Cohen here, thanks for being with us. Claire Connor is fighting for her country, trying desperately to make Americans realize that the John Birch Society is alive and well, and as she puts it, extremely dangerous. May not call themselves a John Birch Society anymore, but that same mindset is there, and it is quite dangerous indeed. Claire Connor is author of the new book, and it's a very good read, Wrapped in the Flag, which details her childhood Growing up in her Birch Society parents, her parents were Chicago's top two Birch leaders in the 50s and early 60s. Connor has experienced the dangerous far right perhaps more than any other American. And she is amazed and frightened to see the same far right now and actually in command of the U.S. House of Representatives. She says, I know that today's new radical right is a rewrite of the old John Birch Society. And this time, the movement has enormous political muscle, unlimited dollars, and right-wing media support. And she says, extremism broke my family. I don't want to see it break my country. Claire Connor, thanks so much for being with us on the Bert Cohen Show. What was and is the John Birch Society? Well, hi, Bert. First of all, thanks so much for inviting me to talk with you today, and I'm looking forward to this opportunity to share my story with you and all of your friends up there in the Northeast and around the country. Well, Let me start out by telling you just a little bit about the John Birch Society, because so many folks either think the John Birch Society was dead and done, or never knew the John Birch Society existed. The John Birch Society was founded in 1959. And it quickly became the largest, most effective, and most powerful populist right-wing organization in the history of the United States. The John Birch Society had two basic functions, two basic goals. One was to stop the communist conspiracy, a conspiracy which they saw as beginning in 1776 with the Illuminati and proceeding right to our day. I remember as a kid... My mother used to give all these prognostications about when the communists would take over America. You know, it was in 1963. Then it was in 1967. Then it was in 1976. And I remember one day she said, it's next Wednesday. So there was quite a bit of fear and paranoia about the communist advance, with plenty of reason, because 
the communists were doing tremendously terrible things and were taking over much of Eastern Europe and Asia. Yes. They're... But very quickly, the John Birch Society sort of put that anti-communist thing in its own place and took up their big battles. And their, and their biggest policy battles were with the federal government. The John Birch Society believed that the federal government had to be reduced by 60%. Now, that's from its level in 1960. So to think about that in terms of practical politics, we have to think about what that would mean. If you cut 60% of the federal government, here are the things that the John Birch Society said would go. Number one, the income tax. So the John Birch Society believed in eliminating the 16th Amendment. Uh, as a little aside, they also believed in eliminating the direct election of senators. That's the 17th. Which is so the 16th? 16th is in progressive income tax. Oh, yes. Isn't it? I take your word for it. <laughs> I believe it is. It's the 16th. And then the direct election of senator with senators was also out. But in addition to that, now that getting rid of the income tax would starve the federal government for money. In addition to that, the John Birch Society does not believe in Social Security. To this day, they don't. Uh, they have called John Bur the, the Social Security the great embezzlement. They do not believe in Medicare. They fought it before it ever passed and continue to fight it to this day. Never believed in food stamps. So when we listen to this argument about food stamps, it's raging today. I mean, I hear my parents and Robert Welsh talking about that, absolutely opposed to food stamps. They do not believe in any kind of regulation of business. So, for example, right. they don't believe in the regulation of water, the regulation of air, the regulation of any substances. They don't believe in any climate uh, regulation. Do not believe in global warming. Uh, they do not believe in such activities as the Federal Aviation Administration. They don't believe in OSHA. And all of those things would be eliminated, along with the Energy Department, the Environmental Protection Agency, Department of Education. And basically, everything that you think of as having occurred in terms of progressive governance, the John Birch Society would repeal. Pretty amazing. Familiar? It does sound extremely familiar. It doesn't even sound like we're talking about history. It sounds like we're talking about current events. That must have been amazing for you, having lived through that in the 50s and 60s with your parents so deeply involved. Uh, did you at some point think that that was it? The, the radical right was gone? Oh, I did. I absolutely did. And so did most Americans. In fact, um, what actually happened to the John Birch Society was, at the very beginning, they were embraced by the Republican Party. Yes. Definitely embraced by the Republican Party. Because the John Birch Society produced all kinds of political activists. While the John Birch Society claims that they didn't, as an organization, take part in politics, believe you me, it was clearly evident that everybody was doing political things and encouraged to do them from the organization itself. So the John Birch Society was political activists. They believed in um, getting out there and changing 
the direction of the country by policy and by making sure that right-wingers were elected to office, and they did that quite effectively. And that was going along just fine for the first year and a half or so, two years of the John Birch Society's uh, birth. They'd gained tens and tens of thousands of members, and they were growing very rapidly. Right. In fact, in, uh, my dad said it, by Christmas of 1960 that they would have 100,000 members. That was 10% of what Robert Welsh thought they needed to actually beat back the communists. They were aiming for a million members. So they would have been come a long way in the first year and a half, two years. So what happened was a book that Robert Welsh <laughs> wrote, a book that he planned to keep a secret, became public knowledge. In that book, Robert Welsh, the founder of the John Birch Society, said that Dwight David Eisenhower was a communist. Right. Now, let's just hear what he... These are the words that he wrote in this book. He said, My firm belief that Dwight Eisenhower is a dedicated, conscious agent of the communist conspiracy is based on an accumulation of detailed evidence so extensive and so palpable that it seems to me to put this conviction beyond any reasonable doubt. And then he said, There is only one possible word to describe his purposes, and actions. That word is treason. So Robert Welsh called Dwight David Eisenhower the Republican President of the United States, by the way, and before the uh, election of 1960. Here he was, the President, a Republican, called Eisenhower a communist, and said that he was a traitor to the United States. Now, this is the man, Eisenhower, who was the hero of World War II, the Supreme yep. Allied Commander. He defeated the Nazis and the, and the Japanese. I mean, this was, he was a great American. Yes, no question. So when this, uh, when these accusations became public, the Republican Party looked at this and said, uh-oh, we have a problem. We've got a really big problem. We cannot be the for this hate Eisenhower organization. We can't be part of these crackpots. So they set out, and the reason being, of course, they'd never win an election right. if they looked like they were harboring this sort of radical thought. So they set about to get rid of the Birchers. And one of the men who helped greatly in terms of kicking the Birchers out of the GOP was William F. Buckley, who was the editor of National Review, and we know him today as the patron saint of the conservative movement. Bill Buckley, who, by the way, had been a friend of Robert Welsh. Yes. A friend. And Robert Welsh had contributed to Buckley's uh, fledgling newspaper, uh, magazine, National Review, twice. My parents knew Bill Buckley. I mean, they, everybody loved him. He was to be, you know, the, the sure. beam of light for the conservative movement in the early 60s. Right. Now, Bill Buckley started to write a series of articles criticizing the John Birch Society. Those articles helped the GOP push the Birchers out. In addition, the Chicago Daily News ran a series of articles about a meeting in Glenview, Illinois, which my father was running, Yes. And at which time this book became 
public knowledge. And those articles went national. They went all over the country. So in 1960, 61, 62, there was a concerted effort to sort of blacklist the John Birch Society. And people thought they'd done it. Yep. I mean, folks were pretty excited that, or, um, that the John Birch Society would never have any influence on American policy. So everybody was just kind of dancing on the Birch grave, <laughs> a little prematurely, it turns out. Well, there was 1964 when uh, the Birch Society was very enthusiastic about the Republican nominee who beat back the, the moderates, the traditional conservatives of the Republican Party. That would be Barry Goldwater. And then he got his, uh, uh, his self handed to him, shall we say, in that election. And once again, it looked like the Birch Society was dead and buried. And they came along, and uh, it's it's amazing how... You know, I actually have a a friend, uh, a Facebook friend, who is a a Southern secessionist. I mean, you know, and I think that's an interesting movement that's still going on. And and he said that uh, uh, the Don, and this is a quote from him: "The John Birch Society has been proven mostly correct in their dire predictions of the 1960s." So he is validating the John Birch Society, this hard, hardcore secessionist. Do you see any connection between? Absolutely. You know, I'll tell you, I just want to interrupt for one second. Sure. And I don't forget to say this. Right now, the John Birch Society is part and parcel of this idea of pushing nullification of federal laws. Tenth Amendment. And so I'm, I'm sure that you have a pretty bright audience out there. And so when you hear the word nullification, all of us know about the 1850s. Yes. And the whole nullification movement. The idea was, prior to the Civil War, that individual states, had the right to say, we're nullifying a piece of legislation in our, our state. Right. Because we say it's either unconstitutional or it is against our state's interest. So the whole movement for nullification has historically been studied as having a huge impact on Southern secession and ultimately on the Civil War. Yep, it clearly did, and it's still going on today. There are what they call the Tenthers who want to nullify uh, federal authority. And I wonder what connection you may see between the values of the old Confederate South, you know, white men rule, and the Birch Society and today's Tea Party. Well, I think it's really interesting. And in my book, I tell a story of my mother. My mother was... um, Raised in Chicago, a good Catholic woman from the Midwest. She um, loved the South. She loved the Confederacy. She talked about the Civil War as uh, the War of Northern Aggression. Now, this is a woman, this is a Yankee, so to speak, you know. I could not understand where she was getting this because. Um, even as a child growing up, to, you know, studying history, the Civil War was horrendous evil visited upon the United States. And I knew as a kid that the Southern states fought against the North because they wanted to enshrine slavery 
as a permanent fixture in their economy. Um, and it was evident to me that Abraham Lincoln was the great hero who saved the Union. But in my mother's mind, and in my mother's, what she read, and in Robert Welsh's mind, um, states' rights are the primary, uh, the most important and primary reality in the United States. So I came to understand that my parents and the John Birch Society and Robert Welsh sort of saw um, individual states as their own little countries, so to speak. I, I used to argue with my dad when I studied history in college and then said to him, Dad, you know, you're talking about the kind of government that you want is the Articles of Confederation. That's true. Where there was not national sovereignty, there was a an inability in the, in the um, Articles of Confederation to do anything. So, for example... Uh, while the Articles of Confederation were in, in force before the Constitution was written and adopted, it turns out that they didn't, the federal government couldn't even get legislation to pay to feed the Continental Army. It was a mess. So, but that is the country that my mother, my dad, many Tea Party people today. Yes. That's the country that they long for. That's this imaginary place where you have no federal government. Um, it's tiny, and everybody else is rich and happy. Now, I don't know where that is, Bert, that world. <laughs> it's certainly no place I've ever seen. Well, it's certainly... Um, but don't you sort of see, I mean, I think maybe we can talk about it this way. I sort of see what's going on in the United States today is we have this alliance. I think it's a very unholy alliance. We sort of have this alliance between people who call themselves libertarians, mm -hmm. whatever that means, right. people who call themselves Tea Party people, John Birch people, the religious right, and a lot of big, big corporate money. Oh, yes. And all of these folks are busy. Um, working on policies that suit their view of America, no matter the consequences to citizens living in the United States. That just is not, that's just the way it is. They don't, I, I believe, they do not see, nor do they care what would happen, for example, if there were no food stamps in the United States. What would happen to the kids who would go hungry? That's not on their radar screen. No, not at all. Not the at all. The same with senior citizens. My father, who was take, who was getting Social Security, by the way, uh -huh. you know, thought Social Security should be gone, done in, away. I said, Dad, that's all well and good for you because you run a company. So you could save for your retirement because you could just pay yourself more, right? What about the person who makes hardly enough to live now, how exactly is that person going to fund their Social Security, their retirement? And you know what? It's like, well, that's not my concern. Well, my mother said that about poor people one time, and I was having tea with her, you know, and I said, 
Bob, what would actually would the United States of America look like if you accomplished your goals? What would it look like? Mm. She says, oh, it would be glorious, dear. The Constitution. I said, hey, Mom, I have news for you. The Constitution is not feeding a hungry child. The Constitution is not helping a man get a job. The Constitution is not keeping garbage from being put in the water. The Constitution is doing nothing about air pollution. And she said to me, that's not my concern. Amazing, amazing. You know, people who just think they want the corporations to run everything, just, you know, unrestrained uh, free market that just serves itself and that that can exist without any kind of infrastructure, can exist without education, without roads, without traffic lights, uh, you know, without people to work there. It's it's phenomenal. Our guest today is the author of a very uh, page-turning book, Wrapped in the Flag. Uh, her name is uh, Claire Connor, and it's about growing up uh, in the Birch Society. And so often, you know, you, you look around at, at, at people and realize that, Oftentimes, people don't choose their lives. You you didn't choose to be uh, brought up in a in a Birch Society leadership family, but here you are, and and making this fight. And it's nobody can talk with greater authority than you about uh, the Birch Society and the dangers of that. And most of us these days have heard of the Koch brothers. What you know a bit about the Koch brothers and well, I do. For, for, First of all, I have to. I sort of have to smile because the Koch brothers are Birch kids too. Yes, <laughs> um, we couldn't have a different lifestyle. We couldn't have a different bank account, and we couldn't have a different political perspective than those guys and me. I mean, it's amazing. Um, but, but I think most Americans, when I talk. Around the country, I would talk about Fred Koch. And most Americans are just blown away when they hear how Fred Koch made his money. So I'm just going to tell your audience, and if some of you already know this, please indulge me while I tell everybody who doesn't. Fred Koch, um, in the 1920s, he was an oil man. He was an energy business. And like oil men everywhere, what do they need? They need a government contract. Because energy is the business of government. It has always been. So Fred Koch looked around, and lo and behold, he couldn't get a contract in the United States for lots of reasons, some of them economic and a lot of other reasons, probably some of them political, who knows. In any case, Fred said, I have to have contracts in order to grow my business. So he landed some. Fred Koch landed in 1929 a three-year contract to build power plants inside the Soviet Union for oh Joseph Stalin. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so let's think about that. The great anti-communist, who was one of the founding members of the John Birch Society, took $660,000 in 1929, which would be about like $6.5 million or maybe more today. So he made a lot of money for 1929, and we know in 1929... Uh, the economy was dire. Things were dire in the United States. Yes. So here you have a guy who travels in the Soviet Union getting these power plants built. Now, Joseph Stalin understood that he would never build 
the Soviet Union into a world power without power. And Fred Koch helped, helped him get it. Okay, great. <laughs> Fred comes home. He never says anything. He didn't become an anti-communist in 1929 or 1930 or 1931. Instead, he built, he took that money, and he developed even bigger business in the United States. Now, in 1959, Fred Koch wrote a book called A Businessman Looks at Communism. And in that book, he talked about the horrible situation, how communism was so grim, and how he had seen this when he traveled there. Now, personally, myself, I don't know why it took him so long to write that, because, frankly, how long would it take you to figure out that things were not good in Stalin's Russia in 1929? Yeah, really. Not long. I mean, the purges were going on on the street corners. So it was not a secret what Stalin was doing in 1929. So anyway, Fred finally got, you know, converted against what was happening in the Soviet Union. But he immediately moved from that in his book. And he talks about two aspects which have become part and parcel of what we see both in the John Birch Society and in today's Tea Party. Number one, he said... Labor unions must go. He was totally opposed to labor. Fred Koch was one of the people who helped to build that movement that's named, ironically, the right to work. You know, the movement that basically says you have the right to work for less without benefits and no protection. Right. So that was Fred. The other part of Fred's big diatribe against communism had to do with people he called colored people. Because that was the term right. that, you know, the right wing was using, many people were using to describe African Americans sure. in the 1950s. Right. So he says in his book, the colored man looms large in the communist plot to take over America. Really. That's what he said. Wow. Now, interestingly enough, the John Birch Society went right ahead on those positions from Fred. Now, whether those positions came from Fred or from Robert Welsh, I don't know, but they both held the same views, that the labor unions were essentially evil and that the communists were using colored folks to advance their agenda to take over the country. That sounds so similar. And now you have the Koch brothers, his sons, mm-hmm. who are worth something like $60 billion, which is, to me, I, I can't even imagine that, who are carrying on the very same tradition and funding, heavily funding, the uh, the Tea Party. And right. And what the, what the John Birch Society did, um, I, I should just fill sure. in a little more of the history here. Yes, yes. Um, in, the 19, in 1964, when everybody um, in the GOP was congratulating themselves on having killed the Birch Society, Bill Buckley used to say, I personally killed the John Birch Society. Well, I'm sure Bill would have a different view of things today. Yes. In any case, um, while that was going on, the John Birch Society looked to the South. They looked to the South, where the, uh, the energy of the civil rights movement had a lot of white folks terrified. And Robert Welsh loved to stoke that fear. fear. You know, he wrote mm. things like this. He said... Uh, the civil rights movement, if the schools are integrated, we will have a permanent police state in America. 
That's Robert Welsh, the founder of the John Birch Society. He said things like this. The idea of civil rights was conceived by the communists to foment racial riots in the South. Mm-hmm. The goal was to break off one part of the United States after another until the communists had converted the United States into four separate police states. That was Robert Welsh in 1961. Mm. This is Robert Welsh in 1961. He said, separate but equal. Now, get this one, Bert. Separate but equal is surely, slowly breaking down. With regard to public facilities, wherever Negroes earned the right by sanitation, education, and a sense of responsibility to share such facilities. So, translation, separate but equal is going away when clean black folks, well-educated, and having a sense of responsibility deserve it. Now, I find that that quote to be just... That's rather appalling. Stunning. A little bit racist, just a little bit. And and you wrote that in 1958, Robert Welch talked about racial issues as, quote, again, Robert Welch, fomented almost entirely by the communists to stir up such bitterness between whites and blacks in the South, unquote. Now, today, right. today, when we mainstream Americans simply point out racism like what Robert Welch just, you know, you quoted him as saying, they say pretty much the same thing, that we mainstream Americans are the racists for pointing out racism. If anybody speaks out Against you know segregation and Jim Crow laws, nowadays they've taken up the uh, the mantle and saying that well we are the racists by pointing it out. Your comments on that? Well, it's absolutely not. I mean, honest to God, your head spins around. Sometimes I feel like Linda Blair in The Exorcist. <laughs> no, spins around and you're going, what the heck? Yeah. Uh, so, on the one hand, here's the thing. I don't know. That I, I wonder sometimes if the term that we need to use in this country is hatred. Um, not that it's right. an ism sort of term, but talk about hate. Because the hatred that has been revved up, fueled up, and launched on the right is truly, absolutely, should have us all not only angry, but really terrified for what's happening to this country. I mean... In Virginia, they unfurled this huge Confederate flag and fire flight over the interstate. In the South, I live in Florida. I tell you, I am so tired of seeing people with Confederate flags in their back windows. What are we talking about? We're talking about a war to stop the buying and selling of human beings. That's what the Civil War was about. I don't care how you pretty it up saying it's about states' rights. Oh, yeah, it was about the right of states to allow the buying and selling of human beings in their border. That's what it was about. And it's, it is time that we just said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We will not, this is not a symbol of patriotism to fly a Confederate flag. It's and, not. And, and what about the, the reality that when you know, mainstream Americans simply point out racism, it's it's so similar to to Robert Welch saying, "Well, when you talk about racial issues, you're only aiding the communists." It's, That's right. It's so similar. It's amazing to me. Well, uh, and you know, 
this is a place where we allow, and uh, we live in a country where this sort of twisting of language goes on to the yes. point where you're kind of, it's madness. I mean, I've lived in the United States my entire life, but in the last six years, I've heard things said living here in the South that are absolutely appalling. I mean, I listened on television, watched on television, a rally in Sarasota, Florida, just down the way from me, where I live, mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the election where Sarah Palin was running for vice, vice president. president. Right. So Sarah Palin was in Sarasota in 2000, before the election, so it would have been in the summer, before the 2008 election. And she's just, you know, raising all kinds of hell with the audience about then-Senator Obama palling around with terrorists and all this kind of thing. You know how she did that. Oh, yes. And in the audience, this chant started. Terrorist, terrorist, kill him, kill him. Wow. This is on television in Florida. This is the kind of thing we are dealing with. I worked for the Obama campaign, and I make sure, full disclosure, I worked for the Obama campaign as a volunteer twice to to elections. I was called names that, honestly, I've never said. And seeing as how I learned swear words from some masters. (laughs) To hear people call me these words. This amount of hatred that has been ginned up toward the President of the United States is dangerous, not only, uh, not just to President Obama. I mean, some Tea Party guy just the day before yesterday yes, yes. suggested that Obama and his children and wife should be killed. Yes. Fascinated. He did. Now, it's not only bad, but it's, an, uh, it's a demeaning of the presidency. And, and when you think about it, once you've let all this hatred out, how do you ever stop it? And it's... There's so many different aspects here to discuss. The parallels are just amazing. If you just tuned in, our guest today is author of the new book, Wrapped in the Flag, Claire Connor, who grew up in a Birch Society leadership family, and she's a little bit uh, concerned, as am I. I did not grow up in a Birch Society family, but... uh, Wow, the the things you have experienced, and and I also grew up in the fifties. And you know, you talk about the use of of language that the the far right has gotten, frankly, pretty good at. Back in the fifties, we heard the term brainwashing. I was terrified of Soviet brainwashing as a little kid, and that that came from the far right. On on Facebook just yesterday, I read this. Leftists brainwashed Americans into thinking that capitalism, liberty, personal property, profit, and individual responsibility are bad. And this is from something called Freedom Outpost. As your book says... What a complete crock is that? Absolutely. I mean, let's let's talk about that for a minute. (laughs) It's incredible. My father used to talk about liberty, liberty, liberty. I I love the fact that that liberty, we we had to run it off the flagpole all the time about liberty. But when you would say to him, wait a minute, wait a minute, how liberty is it for your children to go hungry? Because you happen to live in a part of the country where there are no jobs. I mean, I find it amusing, actually, 
that all these people who say, oh, liberty, liberty, you know, business will do it. Right. Profit will handle it. Sure. When exactly are they going to do that? If ever there has been a time for wealthy Americans to prove that, in fact, they are going to do something to help those who are in need, I would expect during the last five years would have been a good time to, to do it. Yet, charitable giving among the rich has dropped. Why? Why? I don't know. Well, I'm not rich, so consequently <coughs> I can't answer that question. But I just read an article that said, because the, they don't think, rich folks don't think that charities do a good job. Okay, we're living in a country where we have poverty among children reaching epidemic level. Epidemic level. Yes. And you're going to tell me that liberty is somehow diminished when those kids have meals? I think that is complete <laughs> utter baloney, and it's evil, frankly. Let me be clear. That's evil thinking. The and idea, I mean, I, I, today I was actually writing about this on my Facebook page in regard to food stamps. And I think about the America that these uh, geo peers who love small government, who love, they love this idyllic time before the social safety net, before um, this evil, whatever, welfare state took hold, right? And I remember in 1976, I was at my mom's house, and we were having a discussion. An argument would probably be more accurate. Mm -hmm. My father was there, too, about whether or not um, pro-life people, the people in the pro-life movement, should be supporting politicians who want to cut food subsidies for women, infants, and children. It used to be called the WIC program. And lo and behold... The pro-life movement that I was a member of at the time was all quiet and silent about these cuts that were coming, and they were taking real food from the very people who we're supposed to be pro-lifing about, right? Women and children. Right. Pregnant women and children. Right. So I'm saying to my mother, stop already with this right wing, somehow this is an infringement on liberty or states' rights or some other nonsense, and tell me how you can call yourself pro-life and still be okay with the fact that pregnant women are losing their food subsidies. Just tell me that. So my mother goes into her office, and she comes out with the latest bulletin of the John Birch Society written by Robert Welsh. So this would be June and July 1976. And she opens this bulletin and says, See, this is why. Robert Welsh did this long analysis of American history. And when he got to his favorite part of American history, which, by the way, is 1900, to eh, 1920. They love that time. So here he is. Robert Welsh says that the economy was booming and American free enterprise and liberty were proving how awesome everything could be. Those are not. That's not exactly a, right. Essentially, <clears throat> he was saying. Then he went on, went on and said this. And this is a quote from the man. He said, there were pockets of poverty. Okay, Bert, you can laugh now. Pockets of poverty in 1900. There were pockets of poverty. (laughs) But the 
poor folks were free, it was a healthy kind of poverty, you said. It was a healthy poverty. Oh. Now get your arms around that. Healthy <laughs> poverty. That's Robert Welch. Okay. Free from government interference. It's... That's what the man wrote. And that's the argument that my parents used to say, hey, we don't need to help these folks because that's a healthy kind of poverty. Robert Welsh also said this when he was asked about the necessities of life. This is a quote from him. He said, while food, shelter, and clothing are necessities for an individual in a civilized community, the guarantee that he will always have them is not. So even Robert Welsh said, you know, you got to have food, shelter, and clothing. It's a necessity for a civilized community, but tough luck if you don't have them. Now, that is what really provokes me about these right-wingers. It's the they, same language. Liber, you know, they're libertarian. So thus, the free market will fix everything. Exactly when has the free market done a thing about this? Uh, Just when? It, it, it hasn't, but, you know, as, as you point out, uh, facts and reality, as, as you talked about, you realize with your, your mother in particular, uh, it, it didn't really matter. That, uh, as you no. said, uh, and when you talk now to Tea Party people, it seems we are in different universes. And, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's quite the same now. And uh, you've had some amazing experiences, and, and what you're describing now, there are people who are probably listening, and I know people in the John Birch Society are, in fact, listening now. Hi, guys. And there's, they're agreeing that, uh, you know, having these programs for the poor is socialism. It's a foot in the door. It's bad because it's socialism. And you know what? Oh, good grief. They have been railing about socialism, communism, Marxism, since I was a child. Oh, yes. Okay, it's a foot in the door to socialism. Right. What does that even mean anymore? <laughs> in, uh, in a developed country, uh, the United States of America, we are supposed to be a first world country. Yet we have pockets of poverty, as Robert Welsh would say, pockets of poverty that are appalling. And by the way, much of them in the South in the South, Virtu- yes. where Huge there is no employment. There is no employment. So if, in fact, taking care of these people were going to lead us to socialism, socialism is involved in the federal government owning the means of production. And where does the federal government own any means of production? In fact, food stamps actually gives people money to go buy Food produced in the free market. (laughs) This is insane and crazy. We have this sort of hysteria when anyone says socialism. We're hysterical. It's true. When people hear the word socialism, they often stop thinking. And and I got to tell you a quote. We were talking about, uh, you know, pro-life. Old Congressman Barney Frank said, yeah, pro-lifers are pro-life from conception to birth. That's pretty much it. Now, you you describe in the 1950s, and you really paint a a great a picture in this book, uh, wrapped in the flag. Your parents had cocktail parties, uh, a lot of tobacco there. It sounds like, but people didn't know better. And you describe everyone was talking about tyranny, 
brainwashing in schools, communists and socialists, Jews and money, Negro problems, gun rights, and taxes, unquote. You pointed out that uh, author David Halberstam said of the 50s, quote, it was a mean time. The nation was ready for witch hunts, unquote. Yeah. It, it seemed like that had gone away for decades, but it's now kind of dominating the airwaves and general political discourse. Is is today's Tea Party similarly mean? Is the nation as accepting of this this meanness, this manipulation of fear and anger as it was then? And and why why do you think you know why was it so ready for such meanness back then? And why might it be ready now? It seems to me. It seems to me that hating the poor, kicking those who are in need, ignoring the plight of the unemployed, uh, diminishing our social, I use the word social, community responsibilities to each other, and recognizing that a government involved and facilitating improving the plight of those in need. I see those as virtues. Yes. My parents and today's right wing see those as vices. I find it extremely interesting that for most of the folks who are so angry, they're actually paying a lower tax rate than they've paid in years. Um, our corporations, fully 10% of them pay nothing, zero, right. not a dime to the federal government in any taxes. They get unbelievable tax credits for, uh, I don't know, breathing. And it's we like... See our social safety net being shredded on the basis that we can't afford it. And yet, if the people of the United States paid... Uh, the taxpayers and the corporations and the wealthy folks pay a reasonable tax rate, we would be well able to afford to help those in need. Somehow or another, we have this idea that if you're poor, it's your own damn fault. Right. Excuse my language. People believe that. It's your fault. Yep. And I think about the fact that there, but for the grace of God, go all of us. That's true. We could wake up in the morning and be in desperate shape financially. Unless, of course, you're Fred, uh, you're David and Charles Koch. <laughs> but for most of the rest of us, huh, it, it, you it, can be a paycheck away, an accident away, yep. or a personal tragedy away from economic disaster. And you know what? We used to recognize that reality. Yeah, we, we did. We recognize that reality. Now we're like, so what? So what? And aside from any, you know, altruistic and being nice to people and caring about people, the fact is this, I mean, just in terms of the economy, if you have more people working, if you have more people participating uh, as citizens and invested in the system, it's better for the economy as a whole. It just exactly is. And, you know, there's there's an interesting phenomenon that I've discovered with, with the, the Tea Party people. And when you and I grew up, there were two competing parties, the Democrats and Republicans. But we we certainly, certainly recognized, hey, we're all Americans. We, You know, everybody fought together under that 
uh, <laughs> General Eisenhower in the Second World War, liberals and, and conservatives. But it seems to me these days the right wing, which is in control of the Republican Party and in this far right is in control of, the, of Congress, they see and define many aspects of politics as us versus them, the real Americans versus the others. Some, and that's an amazing change to me. It, it, it may have been the case with the Birch Society in the 50s and early 60s, but that's something fairly new that, that you know, those of us who may not be, you know, ultra right-wing conservatives are the other. And it's easy for Obama to be the other because of his color. You know, the other thing that I think that we need to point out is the largest recipient of our safety net, the largest recipient of a special deals from the federal government, the thing that costs us the most money of all is corporate welfare. Yep. Now, let's just... Socialism. That yep, yep. That is... If you want to worry about socialism... Yep, there it is. Motherism, Absolutely. You might maybe need to worry about that. Because facts are facts. The oil industry is dragging, is getting... Billions and billions. What the heck is it? Forty billion dollars in subsidies? Come on. Um, GE pays no taxes. It is a completely amazing reality. Yet, middle class people in the Tea Party or upper middle class people have been talked into thinking that poor folks are what is causing an economic drag in this country. Now, exactly how they think not feeding poor folks is going to improve anything is beyond me. It's yeah. beyond me, Bert. Yeah. I mean, if you think about that, if you have such economic need, such economic need because of this horrific recession that still continues in so much of the United States, that if you have this horrific need, but you're going to, quote, unquote, save money by not feeding folks? What's going to happen next? Nobody asked the question, what happens then? I mean, I can remember we got food stamps in the 1960s because of some investigation of the situation for poor children in the great state of Alabama and Mississippi. And what did we, was found when studies were done was the children in the 60s in pockets of the South were as hungry and had the same physical anomalies as starving children in Africa. That's how we got the food stamp program in the first place, people. So now we're like, yay, we don't need the food stamps. Let those people pull them ourselves upside mm -hmm. their bootstraps. How exactly? Uh, what bootstraps do you have? when your children are hungry, and other facts that we have to just get clear. The majority of recipients of the food stamp program are children, and a large percentage of recipients are already working. They are the working poor. And the working poor in this country, we subsidize the working poor in this country because their companies don't pay them a living wage. And the same people who hate these poor folks so much are totally opposed to increasing the minimum wage. Totally opposed. And yet they, they're they all for 
subsidizing with our tax dollars, my tax dollars and yours, Claire, the big corporations. We have this tremendous military welfare that, that d- doesn't do anything. We- it's terrible. And it has got to be, we have to get clear. These folks hate poor people. Uh, I find it to be not even a matter of altruism, but it's a matter of fact. You cannot allow, we cannot allow this level of poverty in the United States to go unchecked. And in fact, food stamps are one of the better economic stimuli because they return more than their cost in terms of the trickle-down, if you want to call it that, the multiplier effect in the economy. So honestly, you have to just be darn mean and spiteful to want to rid yourself of food stamps. I just saw a study today that said... There's a tiny, tiny amount of fraud in the food stamp program, about 2%. No. That's yeah. it. Right. You know what? There's more fraud in corporate welfare than that by a moon rock. Oh, my. Watch. <laughs> no question about it. And and the same thing goes with, uh, and we're unfortunately coming up against the, the end of the hour. I could do another hour easily on this. So could you please remind everybody, or may I please remind everybody, take a look at my book. It's available in your bookstore. It's available in your library. And it is, of course, available online in hardcover, in ebook, and on Audible. In some places, it isn't in your library or your bookstore, so then you can pick it up on Amazon. And I really appreciate the support. We need to support our liberal writers if we want them to have a larger audience. So I really appreciate the support of your listeners. And thank you for having me. And the book is Wrapped in the Flag. The author is Claire Connor. The publisher is Beacon Press, I believe. And uh, it's it's really an amazing lesson in history. And, you know, here it is once again. We thought it was, uh, you know, gone. But here it is again. And thanks very much for being with us, Claire Connor. Again, the book is Wrapped in the Flag. And I'm going to end with a humorous song from 1963, uh, from Bob Dylan about the John Birch Society. It's funny, but it's scary as well. Hey, thanks very much for listening. Well, I was feeling low down in blue. I didn't know what in the world I was going to do. Them communists, they were coming around. They were in the air. They were all over the ground. They wouldn't give me no peace. down most hurriedly and joined the John Birch Society. Got me a secret membership card, started walking off down the road. Oh boy, I'm a real John Bircher now. Look out, you commies. Well, we all agree with Hitler's views, although he killed six million Jews. It don't matter too much if he was a fascist, at least you can't say he was a communist. That's to say, like, if you got a cold, take a shot of malaria. Well, I was looking everywhere for them reds. I got up in the morning, looked under my bed, looked in the stove, behind the door, looked in the glove compartment of my car, couldn't find them. Well, I looked underneath everything, behind a chair, Looking for them reds everywhere. I even looked up my chimney hole, looked up deep inside my toilet bowl. They got away.
home alone, I started to sweat. I figured they was inside my TV set. Peeked behind the picture frame, got a shock from my feet right up to my brain. Them reds caused it. I know they did, them hardcore ones. Well, I quit my job so I could work all alone, and I changed my name to Sherlock Holmes. Following some clues in my detective bag, I discovered there was red straps on the American flag. Oh, Betsy Ross. Investigated all the books in the library, 90% of those got to be thrown away. Investigated all the people that I know, 98% of them have got to go. The other 2% of fellow butchers, just like me. He's a Russian spy, Roosevelt Lincoln and a Jefferson guy. To my knowledge, there's just one man that's really a true American. George Lincoln Rockwell. I know for a fact he hates comedies because he picketed the movie Exodus. Well, I finally started thinking straight when I run out of things to investigate. Couldn't imagine anything else, and so now you find me at home investigating myself. Hope I don't find out nothing. Good God. <laughs> 